You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Ladies and gentlemen, you're all very welcome to the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. My name is Björn Jeden and I'm heading the Asia program at the Institute. China's Belt and Road Initiative, or the BRI, is a grand development project, or some would perhaps say development experiment, for infrastructure and connectivity in and beyond Eurasia. While the Chinese government assures that the initiative will bring win-win outcomes for all involved, doubts and concerns remain in some quarters about both the drivers and the consequences of the project. No matter what one thinks of the BRI, it seems increasingly clear that the project will have potentially far-reaching effects on Swedish and European interests. In order to tackle questions arising in relation to the BRI, as well as China's growing global footprint as a whole, a new independent research network has recently been created called the Stockholm Belt and Road Observatory. The network is interdisciplinary with expertise from fields such as international relations, development economics, environmental science, political science, and war studies. We're working hard to set up a web page where you can access more information, research, and analysis. Until then, I would suggest you to look up the individual members for up-to-date research and analysis on the BRI. The aim of the network is twofold. First, the network will allow its members to share and criticize research and initiate collaborative projects. Second, we also hope that the network, together with the government, private sector, and civil society, can play a role in a wide Swedish dialogue about the BRA and China's global role, especially its consequences for Sweden. Today, to mark the launch of the Stockholm Belt and Road Observatory, I'm very happy to share the stage with another five of its members. First, to the left, we have Åsa Malmström Rognes. She's a researcher at the Department of Economic History at Uppsala University. Jai Zhou, researcher at the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, CIPRI. Viking Buman, who is coordinator of the observatory. Jerker Hellström, head of Asia and Middle East program at the Swedish Defense Research Agency, FUI. And to the left, we have Dikal Weissmann, associate professor at the Swedish Defense University, and senior research fellow here at UB. I will ask Osa, Jai, Viking, and Jerker to each make a presentation, and Mikael will then pose a number of questions to the panel. If you're tweeting about the event, please use the hashtag UVEvent. Osa, please. Thank you. Um, I should start by saying that um, John said that I'm a researcher in economic history. That's true. I started out as an economist and have spent many years in Asia working primarily at the Asian Development Bank. 
And then I returned to Sweden and did a PhD in economic history because I figured you have to understand history in order to understand development processes properly. So I'm not a sinologist. I approached this, the BRI project as an economist from the development perspective and in particular development finance and that broad perspective. I did a project uh, recently on the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, a development bank in, based in Beijing. And as the name in, indicates, it focuses on infrastructure. And this was very interesting because uh, about a decade ago, the Asian Development Bank, another bank in the region that I worked at, they did a study estimating that the infrastructure needs of the period 2010 to 2020 would amount to 8 trillion US dollars. And that's part of the reason why this other bank was founded, because there's a huge need for infrastructure. Consequently, lots of financing is needed. A more recent study two years ago suggested 26 trillion US dollars for the period 2016 to 2030. So there's an awful lot of money we're talking about here. And the existing development banks that cover this whole region, if we look from the Pacific to to Eastern Europe, they couldn't possibly come up with this amount of money. So it's clear that more money is needed in, able to, in order to, to finance the infrastructure needs. So I did this study of the AIB, its mandate, and what it adds to the existing multilateral development banks. Now, the AIIB is not only connected with the BRI. It depends on who you ask. The president of the AIB, he says it's not a BRI project, others say it is. But that's not really important because What's important here is the infrastructure that is its uh, base of the BRI. Uh, this bank then, it was inaugurated in 2015 and its mandate is up there and its, its focus is on infrastructure and other productive sectors, only financing that. And it had 57 member countries when it was founded and the capital base is a whopping 100 billion US dollars and this is a significant departure in the world of development banks. The other thing is, of course, that it was initiated and proposed by China. So it's the first multilateral development bank to be initiated by a non-OECD member country. The other existing multilateral development banks have all been proposed by the former um, OECD, Western European, North American uh, industrialized countries. So there are already then three banks operating in this region and this new bank will add to these banks. The World Bank covers the whole region, of course, and has quite a broad mandate. The Asian Development Bank only covers the Asian part of the region and aims to foster economic growth and has traditionally financed a lot of infrastructure. The European Bank for Reconstruction and Development was founded in 1991, primarily to support the tr transition of uh, Eastern European countries towards a market economy and its focus is really on uh, developing the private sector, whereas the former two work a lot with the public sector and lend to governments. Uh, the bottom two banks, they uh, only overlap in the Caucasia region and in Mongolia, whereas the World Bank covers a lot, as I said. This is just to show you that when the size of the funding and the, why this is so important and interesting with the new bank, the founding capital of the existing banks, and then calculated at its current value, shows you that the capital base um, of 100 billion for the AIB is close 
quite close to what the World Bank's capital base would be in current values. So this is a much larger bank, which means that it can leverage an awful lot of more money and consequently lend much, much more. Uh, and it almost dwarfs the, these banks, the ADB and the EBRD. One can also look at these numbers at the time the AIB was founded in 2015, what the other banks then lent. And of course, the World Bank, this number is for its global lending, whereas the ADB then is perhaps more interesting to compare with, lent 27 billion US dollars in that year alone. But the AIIB, with its much, much larger capital base, could in theory lend much, much more. So this is a clear departure from the older banks that we have, we're talking about capital in a much, much, much larger scale. And um, such a large bank can also leverage a lot more capital. So when I look at the BRI from an economic point of view, I come into this looking at the infrastructure needs, how this can be financed. The AIAB is part of it, but there is also other, other agencies uh, this one, sorry, I missed this one. This is also just to look, go back to the Chinese perspective of development finance in the broad sense, because the Export-Import Bank does a lot of things. It's not necessarily only development finance. Um, the Silk Road Fund was set up explicitly to fund projects in the BRI. But again, if you just look at the capital base of these institutions, they are really, really large. And it shows that there is a lot of money that can be put... Uh, to use for development in development finance for investments, for trade facilitation and trade finance, etc. So these numbers are what's very interesting here. So to sum it up <laughs> from the BRI, we have a lot of need for infrastructure in the whole region, the whole Eurasian region. Uh, a lot of funding is needed to invest here. China has huge financial capability and capacity looking at the various development institutions that China has. And the questions one can look at is, of course, the absorptive capacity of countries that borrow for infrastructure. How much can they actually borrow? Do they actually have the resources to build and construct and implement all these infrastructure projects that one can um, finance? There's also the question of the financial sustainability of the lending institutions. Because there's been so much lending and the sums are so large and we're starting to sort of examine will these uh, projects actually be uh, pay off and will this lending be sustainable in the long run? There's also the question from an economist's point of view of the debt sustainability of countries that borrow. How much more lending can they actually take on and is it lending that will uh, be benefit, you know, the type of borrowing that will um, generate the returns that they hope. I think we can see in the future, in this whole region, with these all types of different projects that will be financed, a sort of fusion uh, between financial modalities. There will be public sector banks financing uh, projects here. There will be private finance. So I think we're going to see a lot of interesting ways to, to meet these financing needs here. And of course, there will be implications for the development in the huge Eurasian region uh, from the BRI. We will see, hopefully, a lot more trade. We will see investments. There may be migration going back and forth. And of course, these developments will have an implication for debt sustainability and the financial sustainability as well. So they're all connected. So those are the questions that I pretty much bring into this project. 
Thank you very much, Hassan. Hi, uh, my name is Jai Zhao. I'm a researcher at CIPRI, uh, as mentioned. Um, CIPRI is an institute that works on international peace and security problems. And we embarked on, a, on research on the BRI about two years ago. Um, this was research looking at the security implications of the Belt and Road in Eurasia. So we were looking at the Silk Road economic belt and its impact on Central and South Asia uh, in terms of human security, in terms of stability, and we were seeking specifically to look for cooperation points with Europe. As part of that research, we found one of the areas in which there is common mutual interest between the EU and European actors and China in these regions was on the issue of sustainable development and the SDGs in specific. So this presentation will is, is actually quite a good follow-on to Asa's. Um, I'm sorry, I don't have a PowerPoint presentation, but hopefully you can follow me somewhat. Um, I think in relation to uh, the BRI and sustainable development in the SDGs, there are two areas uh, that are very much worthwhile um, to do more analysis and observation on. Um, I think the first area uh, that I want to point out is how the BRI and China as emerging donor um, and financier is changing the global developmental landscape. Um, so it's more the kind of top-down politics of development. Um, the second area is the actual impacts of the BRI on specific localities, on human security on the ground, uh, on societies, communities, um, and stability in countries, uh, economic and political. Um, so I will touch on the first point, and if I don't have time, I'll just skip the second one. Um, but just related to the bigger picture in terms of the BRI and the politics of international development cooperation, um, I think the SDGs as a key organizing principle for, for, for global development in general, a universal one agreed upon by all 193 member states of the UN. Um, I think probably you do not need any background on that, um, but what is less talked about is the, the financing needs that this agenda requires uh, in terms of ending hunger, poverty by 2030. Um, this requires a tremendous amount of money that honestly Western donors are hard pressed to come up with. Um, so. In that regard, well, just, just as a background, the estimate is that there's about a $6 trillion financing shortfall every year in order to reach those goals. Um, so given this context, it's perhaps not very surprising that the UN, as opposed to certain European governments, has actually come out and has embraced the BRI wholesale. Um, so this includes the UN Secretary General, who has attended the, the forum in May 2017, saying that this has tremendous potential for sustainable development. Um, the UN Development Program has signed a memorandum of understanding with the BRI and with China. Um, the UN FAO as well. Um, and you, you have the UN Deputy Secretary General a few months ago um, telling African leaders that they all should sign up for this grand project by China. Um, part of that is about financing uh, in terms of who foots the bill. Um, and that is sort of global landscape that's shifting when U.S. is pulling out a little bit in terms of its commitments to multilater multilateral aid. Uh, China is really stepping up and money does talk. Um, it's not just the rhetoric. It is 
as mentioned, a lot of money. Uh, so specifically related to SDG and SDG implementation, uh, in 2016, China basically uh, set up a new mechanism at the UN. This is the UN Peace and Development Trust Fund. Uh, China bankrolled uh, 200 million US dollars, half of which is actually earmarked for SDG implementation. And it's not surprising with China bankrolling it that they have connected this to the BRI. So the footprint of the BRI, it's no longer just this kind of vague political um, idea. It's, it's really having an impact on the global developmental narrative at a, at a wider level. Um, and it's, it's also not just the money and the rhetoric coming from the UN, there's also to some extent, a lot of sincerity. If you look at China's national implementation plan for the SDGs, um, they actually include in this the fact that they, as part of their uh, desire to implement and to be a, a responsible development partner, they are looking to support implementation of SDGs in all BRI countries. Um, so these are really significant developments that I think the EU and Sweden as a development actor would be very hard-pressed to ignore. Uh, but unfortunately, part of what we're seeing is sort of blank stare face when, when, when it comes to Europe's response to the BRI um, and even OECD countries not knowing exactly what this means and or what to do with it. Um, so I think there are some risks and there are some opportunities um, in terms of engaging. Uh, risks of engaging, of course, uh, but there are risks of not engaging, which is what I, I actually wanted to touch on, uh, which is that these are in, these are going on wh whether or not Europe likes it. Uh, and Europe, if they put their head in the sand or Sweden puts their head in the sand, they risk, um, they risk basically uh, losing out in terms of their own interests in some of these developing countries. So already you're seeing certain developing countries uh, that have more capacity to say no, or where Europe, Western European countries have less leverage uh, over the traditional aid formats that they were, they were giving out, these countries now have other options. And these other options give them more room to say, you know what, we are not going to take these strings attached. We are not going to take these good, good governance models as a prerequisite uh, or for you know, your aid to us, your aid is pit pittance anyways. Um, so in this regard, I think it's really important to, for, for Europe to take a, take a good hard look at it. There's opportunities as well of, of engaging with China and engaging with uh, participating states in the BRI. Um, and those are actually to bring China much more into the fold of responsible donor behavior. Um, uh, I think Europe does have a lot of capacity. It's got a lot of experience with engagement with civil society, with standards, environmental, uh, economic, et cetera, that China can actually learn from. And as part of the project and part of the re research that we were doing at CIPRI, uh, we found that uh, from a lot of Chinese actors, they had a tremendous appetite to learn from Europe. Um, they wanted to engage with Europe, to, for Europe to teach them actually how to do this better. Um, because there's recognition that Chinese aid has not always been the most um, let's say, beautiful model for, for how to do things. Um, and China is actually really new to this. Uh, if I, I'm sure, I, I don't know if many of you know, but China doesn't really have a designated aid agency until about last month. They had no real aid agency to coordinate all of, uh, all of its money going abroad. Aid was actually a, a small department in the Ministry of Finance and Commerce. Um, and unsurprisingly then, uh, a lot of aid 
came in the form of things that looked a lot like China's economic interests. Uh, that's changing, but China actually needs a lot of capacity in that regard, and I think there are a lot of cooperation points. Um, I don't know how much I am for time. Yeah, um, so I think part of this engagement that, that I do see as being uh, potential and necessary, um, and I'll just bring an analogy, is that if you, if you don't know... If you don't know what your own interests are in this regard, you can't blame somebody for, for not following your interests for you, you know? Uh, and kind of on a, as an analogy, you might, you might look at the, developing, the development plans of certain countries. If you look at Kazakhstan, they had a firm idea of what they actually wanted to do, how they wanted to implement uh, a, a sort of a path forward and a vision for their country, and China plugs into those. They have a mechanism um, uh, through which China can channel their money into the vision that Kazakhstan has for itself. You look to its neighbor, you look at Tajikistan, and it's clear that you know, Tajikistan doesn't necessarily have a vision for its own economic future, so it's unsurprising that in those formats, China just does what it wants. So in that regard, I think if you make a parallel then to European uh, response, it's better to have a coordinated vision for what you want and then ask China to kind of go along with what, what you need. But we, in our research in Brussels, and our consultations with EU officials, we haven't seen that happening whatsoever. Um, I'll just briefly touch on the, on the last point, which is the on-the-ground impacts of Chinese projects on the SDGs and development. Um, and that is, I, I guess, the million-dollar question, um, because there have been many questions about what Chinese investments do to governments in, in uh, weak states in developing countries which are marked by corruption, uh, by lack of political and social and economic inclusivity, by lack of social cohesion, uh, the, the extent to which Chinese investments may exacerbate those dynamics. Um, so if you look at, uh, I, I focus a lot on Central Asia, but um, Chinese investments there have in fact just gone to line the pockets of certain political elite. So this requires a lot of monitoring research that, uh, and capacity that uh, I think Europe is well-placed to do, but unfortunately some of that research doesn't really exist at the moment. Um, and yeah, I, I think I'll just stop there. <laughs> Thank you, Jane. Deakin, uh, you want to continue? Um, all right, so I'm going to take a, a European perspective here and um, discuss how Europe has been uh, responding so far uh, to the Belt and Road Initiative. And I will focus on, on three things mainly. Uh, first, uh, perceptions. What is the mood within Europe um, with regards to the Belt and Road? Um, what um, are top-level officials uh, thinking about the project? Um, and what are politicians uh, saying? Um, second is actions. Um, what concrete measures has the EU introduced? Um, and is there any sort of strategic plans on how to uh, face up to this, um, this project? Um, and third point I want to make is uh, Sweden. So what is Sweden's role in this? Um, and what do we need to effectively uh, deal with the Belt and Road? Um, so to begin with uh, the perceptions inside of Europe then, um, I think it's fair to say that just during uh, the last few months, 
um, it is starting to look uh, less and less likely that Europe will just uh, jump on the Belt and Road train and sort of embrace um, whatever, whatever that entails. Um, instead, um, Europe appears to have moved away from its previous uh, wait-and-see approach, um, away from being um, very careful to being uh, actively critical or at least um, suspicious of, of the Belt and Road. Um, most recently, there was an, inter an internal uh, EU report uh, which was leaked, um, which spelled out, um, and I quote here, um, that the Belt and Road um, runs counter to the EU agenda for liberalizing trade and pushes the balance of power in favor of subsidized uh, Chinese companies. Um, so th this is a strong statement. Um, and the fact that it was signed by 27 out of 28 of the EU ambassadors in China um, is, is quite telling. Um, um, so this, this is a pretty clear signal, I think, of the growing criticism. Um, and on top of that, we have officials from France and Germany who have been also issuing uh, or uh, been uh, saying critical things about the Belt and Road. Um, so why are European leaders going in this direction? Um, well, I think there are uh, a number of underlying reasons. Um, but one of the main things is probably that the bigger EU member states are coming to um, terms with uh, the importance and size of this project. Um, and also, more importantly, perhaps, uh, the great risks involved with this for the, the world, as Jay has mentioned, um, and for Europe, more, more specifically. Um, and these risks are connected to a number of things, uh, some of them mentioned already, but unsustainable debt levels uh, is an important concern, uh, a big concern in developing countries. Um, and there is a concern that China is leveraging this economic dependency um, for uh, political gain, right? Um, and this also applies um, to countries uh, within the European Union. So there, there have been big concerns uh, with uh, Greece and Hungary, for example. Um, and on top of that, again, there are risks of environmental degradation, human rights violations, corruption, and so on. Um, so overall, uh, there are many risks, uh, and European leaders are realizing this, and on some occasions they're being uh, very vocal about it. Um, so coming to the second point, which is actions. Um, what is Europe doing about this? Um, how is it planning to seize the opportunities and uh, contain the risks emerging from the Belt and Road? Uh, well, again, it is Germany, France, and together with, with the European Union itself who, have, who has been, uh, they've been leading this process. Um, so at the Munich Security Conference in February, they called for uh, a unified European response to the Belt and Road. And some uh, representatives were very critical, um, Sigmar Gabriel, the den then acting uh, German foreign minister, said that um, he said that the Belt and Road is an attempt by China to shape the world in its favor and spread its own value system as an alternative to the Western model of democracy, freedom, and human rights. Um, in addition to that, and this is perhaps more interesting, he said that um, he called for, I should say, uh, the establishment of a European alternative to the Belt and Road, um, asking for a European infrastructure push in Central Asia, 
uh, Eastern Europe uh, and in Africa. And right now, it is looking uh, as if some of his wishes might actually become reality, um, because the EU is right now in the process of, of developing a new strategy on Euro-Asia uh, connectivity, um, which should be uh, released this year, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, and on, uh, in Brussels, there is also a white paper specifically on the Belt and Road, which is, is being developed that should come out in October. Um, so all, of, all in all here, when it comes to action, I think you can say that, that Europe is really making some efforts uh, to make the most out of this, out of this project. Um, moving to the third point then, so Sweden. Uh, what, what does all of this mean for Sweden? Um, so it appears that Europe is coming to the realization that uh, the Belt and Road will continue to move forward, uh, regardless really of what, what Europe does. Jay made this point as well. Um, it is moving into Europe and its member states uh, will be forced, I think at least at one point or another, to make decisions um, on how to, if not come up with a strategy, at least an approach on how to deal with Chinese projects um, in these places. And all of this is of course also true for Sweden, um, which will be forced to make decisions on how to deal with big Belt and Road projects at one point or another. Uh, in Asia, in Africa, um, inside Europe, and possibly uh, within uh, Sweden's own borders. Uh, and, and here I think we need to ask ourselves, under what conditions do we want to support Belt and Road, Belt and Road projects? Uh, under what conditions do we want to ignore them? Um, under what conditions do we want to maybe even actively oppose them or try to influence them in a certain direction? Um, and these are questions that need to be asked for, for all of the Belt and Road projects, um, for all the different Belt and Road projects, because they are all uh, different. The Belt and Road is not a single project, it is thousands of different projects, and all of them have different stakeholders, uh, different objectives, uh, and different impacts. Uh, so, so we need to treat them as such, I think. Uh, now, to be able to make well-informed decisions, um, on a case-to-case -case basis like this, um, it is absolutely necessary to have access to accurate and complete intelligence, uh, firstly, and then, second, access to a decent national capacity to deal with that intelligence, to um, make sense of that intelligence. Um, and I, I think the observatory which we are establishing here today is, is an important step in this regard. Um, but, but I also think that the Swedish government should consider um, mobilizing and uh, um, coordinating capacity in the foreign ministry, um, in government agencies, uh, in civil society, and, and perhaps more importantly, or most importantly, in the business sector as well. Um, and the earlier we do this, um, the better our position, I think, will be to seize the business opportunities and create good conditions for sustainable development uh, in, in, in other parts of the world, uh, while of course um, avoiding the risks at the same time. Um, and I'll stop there. Thank you, Viking. And then we have our last speaker, Jarker, please. Thank you. Uh, thanks uh, to Uwe for uh, letting me participate in this launch of the uh, Stockholm Belt and Road Observatory for a new era. Oh, no. Exactly, yeah. Okay. With the new era, yeah. Okay. yeah. Thank you. Um, uh, and uh, thank you for um, 
excellent presentations. Uh, also, Ajay and Viking, Viking, and uh, great to see so many people showing up. Of course, there's a huge interest in this topic. Um, and I uh, aim to, uh, I decided to choose uh, a topic that I would be able to handle in five minutes. So, uh, <clears throat> which is um, the initiative previously known as OBOR. Um, the BRI, what is the aim of the BRI? And we already touched about it. I think even uh, Bjorn uh, did have a definition in his uh, introduction. Uh, but what is the aim of the Belt and Road? Um, what are the different areas of cooperation? And finally, uh, actually touching on, on Viking's presentation, what is uh, the EU doing to keep track of um, this huge increase in foreign investment that is actually happening? So, to begin with, uh, the aim. Um, the official narrative is, as you probably are all aware, um, that the end goal of the BRI is to build a community of common destiny of, for mankind um, and establish a new type of international relations with win-win cooperation. Um, of course, Xi Jinping, uh, the General Secretary of the Communist Party, launched the concept of uh, the community of common destiny for humankind. Uh, in Moscow in 2013 and reiterated, reiterated this concept in Davos at the World Economic Forum um, in January 2017 and again at the 19th Party Congress yeah, last October. Uh, this language has also been included in the Security Council resolution uh, in March last year and at the U UN Human Rights Council resolution in March 2018. And there are of course other examples. But what does it mean? Well, it's vaguely described as uh, based on no confrontation, win-win, and consensus. Um, so when trying to grasp the end goal of the BRI, being this community, um, what we get is not so much a, a definition as a slogan um, that China, of course, can define according to uh, its current interests. Um, this community has been described by Chinese scholars as the global dream of China um, and the growing global recognition that China, China's great um, uh, contribution to global governance. And how should one interpret this? Uh, we turn to State Council and Foreign Minister Wang Yi, uh, who explained that the Communist Party aims to set an example to the world uh, proving that China has a unique model different from that of uh, traditional Western powers that can lead humankind. Um, and of course, no matter how benevolent Beijing is, um, I think it's important for Chinese policymakers uh, to grasp the concerns already, of course, uh, outlined by Viking um, in many democratic states uh, over the idea that China would set an example to the world. Uh, because if a major economy, economy becomes more open and transparent as it rises, that of course shouldn't be a problem, but if um, a rising country is becoming less democratic, indeed more authoritarian um, and repressive at home and more assertive abroad, um, while it also tries to shape international norms, norms uh, to its, um, in its terms, uh, of course this will lead to concerns. And that's especially true in the European Union, um, which attaches great importance to adherence to international uh, norms such as transparency, democracy, and human rights. Um, 
So these are some points about the official aims of the BRI, but what about the means? Um, the uh, areas of cooperation. Um, we've got five areas of cooperation, um, official areas of cooperation called Utung. Uh, we've got communication on policy, connected infrastructure, unimpeded trade, um, merged funds, and people-to-people -people connectivity. Uh, I would say then that one major ingredient that's actually part of all these five is the area of acquisitions, so corporate acquisitions, where we have seen a rapid growth in Europe just in the last couple of years. Um, Bloomberg uh, came out with a story just recently saying that the, according to their calculations, at least 318 billion US dollars have been invested or acquired in Europe uh, over the last 10 years. Uh, there are a lot of different FDI numbers, uh, some that are problematic. Uh, this is just one of those. Um, but what is a belt and road in acquisition? Well, you could argue that actually sort of could be in any sector. Engineering, um, energy, logistics, real estate, uh, biotech, information technology. It seems that a BRI, BRI investment is only limited to investments made in BRI countries. Um, then, when it comes to the European um, perspective, uh, we have right now a, uh, an ongoing process regarding investment screening uh, in Brussels. Um, this is a proposal to coordinate information uh, rather than to block uh, investment. I think that's a very important point to keep in mind. And um, that this is screening of FDI and strategic sectors. So this is, this is related to investment, acquisitions, on grounds of, of security or public order. That's it. Um, this was, of course, um, a proposal made by uh, Germany, France, and Italy back in 2017. Um, and, of course, this is a proposal that covers all investment, not only investment coming from China, but, of course, it's a result of uh, the inability of EU member states to successfully manage the growing inflows of Chinese FDI. So that's the reason, but we'll cover all investment. Uh, and a week ago, just last Monday, European Parliament um, approved a proposal um, to um, screen uh, investment for uh, both in terms of uh, the acquiring company structure, um, their value of the companies, and their funding. And I think this is fundamental uh, issues to, to look at. Um, what's coming up next are no negotiations between the European Parliament, between the European Council, Council of Europe, and the European Commission. And hopefully, uh, in late June, there will be a political uh, directive, uh, a, um, an orientation from the Council, and these three parties will continue to negotiate to come up with some sort of uh, closing of this file by the end of the year. We'll see uh, how that happens. But of course, uh, it's important to remember that the EU has no uh, FDI screening um, comparable to those uh, well-established schemes of Australia, Canada, Japan, and the US. Um, and I think it's uh, unfair uh, to uh, link this to protectionism. Of course, uh, there are large concerns against protectionism right, right now, um, uh, which um, is also uh, prompting China to lobby um, quite 
actively in Brussels right now to stop the plans of a screening mechanism, um, which is, of course, somewhat ironic considering that China is one of the most uh, um, restricted um, closed markets in the world. I'll stop there. Thank you. I will now ask Mikael to pose some questions to the speakers. Um, thank you, Bjorn, and thank you for four very interesting presentations. Uh, it's been interesting to listen to, to you talking about AIB uh, infrastructure, um, talking about the global development landscape, European Union, and the aims and means of BRI. Uh, uh, I have, uh, have a first question to the whole panel, and then I'll let Bjorn do sort out rest, yeah. B basically, uh, when, when you look at uh, BRI, in, in, in your view, what is the most important issue? Uh, I mean, in, in particular for Sweden, I mean, what do we need to address today? And uh, what do you think should be done? And I should say, when I'm talking about Sweden here, I mean, I'm not, I mean, I'm not only talking about the government, but, government, but also about the business sector and uh, the political sector, so Sweden as a community, basically. Should we start from this side, Osa, do you want to begin? Um, tricky question. Uh, I think from Sweden has to think through its position, what it is. And I think from my perspective, when I look at the development banks, of course, Sweden is a member. It is a member, one of the founding members of the AIB, but it's a small member. So it can have, it can try to influence policies and projects and uh, things that uh, Sweden has traditionally argued for environmental sustainability, environmental aspects of uh, infrastructure investments, and also the social aspects of that consideration on the project level. But then again, Sweden is a small country in this respect. There are other much larger members of these banks that, are, are that presumably have much more leverage. So I think Sweden also have to collaborate with other countries in this respect. And, uh, and um, you know, an awareness and what does Sweden want to, how do we view this? Um, and in some of the, what Jelke called the quote-unquote PRI countries, I think Sweden traditionally doesn't have a strong position when it comes to foreign aid, like Central Asia. There are other countries like Vietnam where Sweden has a very long history. So there are different countries here where Sweden has its own strong bilateral relations, and some countries there are much weaker. So I think uh, we have to recognize that as a country. Where do we have our strength and in this respect? Um. Yeah, I'm not well-placed to say what the issues for Swedes are in particular, but I think something that is important is to keep track of um, how the global political landscape is shifting and what is Sweden's role within that. So I'm talking more about what does multilateralism mean anymore? Uh, who is the champion of it? Where does Sweden stand in that position? In the sort of emerging, re-emerging East-West confrontation, what you know, where, where does Sweden sit? Does it have an idea of what these things may mean for Sweden in a, in a broader global sense? In terms of specific development cooperation, it's true. Uh, Central Asia, pretty much no real footprint by Sweden. Pakistan, not really either. Um, around Along the maritime route of the BRI, there may be some more issues, Myanmar or Vietnam, as, as you mentioned. Afghanistan, I think, is actually a pretty interesting um, question because uh, Afghanistan is, is where Sweden puts a lot of its development aid and China is an actor there. Um, but one thing I have not seen is any sort of donor dialogues. Um, 
in, in terms of in Africa and Central Asia in general between the, non, the OECD countries, which include Sweden and, and China. And I think this is a, it's a big problem in terms of you know, making sure that aid is actually effective. So it's a bit offside. most important thing. Um, I, when, I, when I think about the Belt and Road, I think of it as um, part of, of uh, can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah, you can hear me. <laughs> <laughs> I think of it as being part of, of Sweden coming up. When, when we talk about Sweden coming up with the response to the Belt and Road, that is part of, of coming up with a decent uh, China policy, a decent national uh, China policy, where, um, so, and I'm not sure that we have one of those. Um, so maybe uh, that would be a good uh, starting point with, you know, taking a step back, Swedish actors uh, together. Um, what are our objectives with China? What is our strategy? Uh, on what assumptions are we basing our uh, uh, policy um, uh, on China uh, on? And, and do those uh, need to be uh, reevaluated, uh, perhaps, in light of, of recent developments? Um, maybe yes. Um, also, you know, should we prioritize short-term gain, or should we try to develop some some type of, of, of long-term sustainable uh, relation to China? Um, so uh, maybe uh, you know, take a step back, gather our thoughts, and then before we start moving forward uh, into these uh, projects, because otherwise, I think it will it will. It will be hard to to uh, to come up with with what we want to do with those projects. My turn. Um, well, uh, I'd uh, like to stress um, in terms of the Belt and Road, uh, one is uh, facts and interests. Uh, facts being having a facts-based approach, uh, actually trying to get down to what's actually happening on the ground. Um, it's important to remember, if you look at the Chinese official statistics, um, we're, of course, in Europe, far from uh, the biggest recipients of uh, investments that are carrying the label Belt and Road. Uh, if you look at numbers from 2016, it's Singapore, Russia, Indonesia, Laos, Kazakhstan, Vietnam, uh, the United Arab Emirates, Pakistan, Myanmar, and Thailand. They're the top ones, and that's the FDI stock. Um, related to BRI, um, but that's just, you know, those are the uh, official uh, investment figures from China, but, you know, what, what is uh, happening on the ground? Um, and the realization that it's not black or white. Some investments are totally fine, other, others should perhaps go through some kind of um, more thorough screening. And then interests, uh, I think it's also important that not only to look at uh, what China's interests are behind those uh, investments, but also to look at our own. Um, and I think that's increasingly troublesome that uh, the EU uh, has uh, a big, well, it's a big challenge for the EU to actually agree on what our norms and interests are, um, specifically when it comes to China policy. Thanks. Yeah, uh, my second question is, I mean, both in my own research, and I think it's quite obvious uh, when I listen to you, I mean, this is not something Sweden can do alone. Uh, so I'm interested to hear your thoughts about what international frameworks you think uh, are the most suitable to handle BRI. 
And uh, I mean, I know the second part of this question is difficult, but if you could also offer some concrete examples of uh, how this could be done, uh, that would be appreciated, but not necessarily expected. I guess you're handing that to me then. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's your million dollar start. question. Yeah. yeah. Can't hide yet, yeah. What international frameworks to handle BRI? Um, uh, well, there's the UN and the EU. Um, no, I think um, I'll actually pass uh, that question on because <laughs> it's too tricky. No, sorry, I haven't thought about it. No worries. Maybe you can come back later, uh, yeah, yeah, speaking, I'll, I'll and then Jai has a hand up as well. Um, so to me, perhaps unsurprisingly, then I think that the EU would be the natural natural partner here. Um, and there are, uh, coming back to intelligence again, just to have a good uh, grasp on these projects, because there really isn't, I think, uh, Jai will know better because he's done uh, research on this, but I, I don't think there's good access to accurate information on many of the projects. So it's simply question of Sweden not having the capacity even to gather all of this information by itself. So that should be the first step I think uh, we should push for within uh, the EU so we can draw on all of the 28 member states' capacities when it comes to information gathering. Um, and in the second step, yeah, we need national capacity to analyze, but that could also maybe be outsourced in, into uh, European um, uh, external action service perhaps could have a, some type of working group there that you actually at least try to coordinate all of this uh, within the European Union. I, I think that would be natural for Sweden to do something like that. Yeah, just add to that. I, I think it, it should also be in China's interests, and, and it would leave room for some sort of cooperation between China and the EU in this case uh, when it comes to good investments, because of course there are a lot of examples of investments that China wishes that they didn't happen. Uh, and uh, this also relates to the issue of money laundering. Um, yeah, I, I guess my answer would be a bit obvious. Um, but if you look at the EU global strategy and what it's always had as its interest, its core interest, it's a rules-based multilateral order with the UN at, at its core. Um, and if you're talking about the UN and UN frameworks, then I think SDGs are a natural starting point because all this is commonly agreed by all member states, uh, European ones, developed countries as well as developing ones. Um, it's a way in which to in which to get China to use the language of the SDGs, to use the language and the standards built over those negotiations. I think it's it's quite a it's a, quite a good way to. It's a quite a good entry point, at least, for cooperation. So I've already talked a lot about that. Uh, thank you. We actually got some time left. So maybe, Mikael, you want to pose one last uh, quick question, and then we can move on to Q&A with the audience. I actually have a, a, a follow-up here, because I mean, it, it's ended up with being very EU-focused, which was kind of what I expected. But I prefer to call it international frameworks to see if you had any other ideas than EU. Uh, but are there any thoughts from any of you about possibilities to collaborate closely with, I mean, I say the U.S., uh, with the, among the Nordic countries, or with the regional powers? Or is, it, or is this very much of an EU thing? Uh, well, uh, if I just follow up on, on my, um, the topic of, of uh, investment screening, of course that's already happening. Uh, of course there's a dialogue with uh, other 
countries who happen to have uh, screening mechanisms in place. Uh, supposedly the US, uh, Australia, um, and of course when it comes to the Swedish case, I guess uh, there should be at least some sort of um, learning from what, is, uh, what has been done in Germany uh, recently, where of course there's been uh, a lot of developments recently. Um, I'm not so sure that the US and the EU would be a good idea to, to try to go to. In some areas where investment screening, I think there's a lot to learn, but I think in general we can see that the EU is trying to formulate so much of a foreign policy and, and stand united. So I think it would be a good idea to, to work with within the EU to see if we can formulate a common position on things that we think are important. Then I think with your point also on the SDGs, that's sort of global agreement, everybody works on that on one level. Um, but I think the EU should not be, sometimes the EU comes across as very, you know, it's a lot of countries rather than the whole union, and try to formulate a common position on certain things. All right, thank you very much. And let's see if we have any, any uh, questions from the audience. Um, uh, yes. Uh, I, I have a number of hands here. I will note you down to the best of my uh, abilities. When you get the microphone, please uh, introduce yourself if you'd like to and uh, ask a short question. And we start by uh, the lady in the first row. Um, thank you very much for an interesting presentation. Um, my name is Johanna Malm. I'm asking uh, a few questions. I have two questions and a comment from a background of having done research on Chinese lending to Africa for a number of years. Um, first, I wanted just to ask you, um, just historically or a recent history, what is the link between the going out policy generally? Um, I guess it's now almost 20 years since the going out policy was formulated, and how does this relate to what has been going on previously in terms of lending to developing countries? And then I wanted to ask um, you to debunk China, the notion of China as... Um, I mean, against the backdrop of uh, the notion of fragmented authoritarianism, as it were, because, I mean, there's different agendas in different foreign policy actors. And I wanted to ask to what extent is BRI actually driven from by commercial Chinese actors? Like, what's the difference in agenda between the SOEs and, uh, you know, different um, foreign policy entities? Um, in my own research, I've been looking at norm challenges um, as in the challenge that Chinese finance has posed to the IMF's norms um, in, in Africa specifically. And what I found was that actually the norm challenge was commercially driven, not wasn't the Chinese foreign central bank people that drove any kind of policy challenge. It was just commercial lending that happened to challenge a norm that it intended to challenge. So I think this is an interesting, I would want to um, hear what you had to say. And I, then, I think maybe... Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Thank you. We, we can, you know, uh, I, I think uh, several of the speakers will stay around after the seminar. So if you have any more questions, there will be time for that later. And actually, the, the second hand I saw was a gentleman on the second row over there. Thank you very much. I'm Ulf Sandmark from Schiller Institute. Uh, I'm from the Schiller Institute. Uh, uh, 
and we have been working the longest here in Sweden about the Belt and Road Initiative since 1992. We have been working with the Belt and Road and we have produced these reports. It's the catalogs of the projects and the, the principles behind the, the Silk Road, the, the BRA. And uh, I would like to ask the question to, to all of you about uh, each of you about this idea of turning to the U European Union as a wait for, for any decision from there. Because if you look to another neutral country like Austria, they have not waited. And also uh, many countries in Eastern Europe, in Portugal, Spain, Italy, Greece, all of them have chosen another line. Also Switzerland is of course not a member of the European Union. They have chosen the other line to make uh, bilateral cooperation with the BRI. And, and especially Austria has taken as a leading policy for the, for the new government to work with the BRI, take it as a priority to, be, to become the node and contact with China to Europe, building this new railway with the broad gorge all the way to Vienna, to have Vienna as the node for the transport. That's my question. Thank you. And then, actually, I think we take one more question. And the third hand I saw was the gentleman on the first row to the left. Hello, and thank you very much. My, my, my name is Mats Engman. I'm a, a senior fellow at the IDSTP Institute. Uh, several of you mentioned the concerns uh, of the Belt and Road Initiative raised by European Union, uh, and particularly by Germany. Then, uh, My question to you is, are there real reasons for this concern? And um, take as an example what China is doing in the China Sea. And what could China do to mitigate some of those concerns, if you do believe they are real? Thank you. Thank you very much. And I let the panel pick and choose between these excellent questions. Um, thank you for very interesting questions. I'll just address the first one, which I think had a lot of very um, insightful components to it. Uh, I think in terms of the going, policy, going out policy more generally, um, I think it was about eight or nine years ago that I was doing research on Chinese investments in the Republic of Georgia. Uh, and I was looking at specifically infrastructural projects that they were doing. And these were railways and tunnels, et cetera. Um, if you flash forward, this is, this is not at all different. Um, there may be a larger scale to it, but I mean, it's basically going out 2.0, going out on steroids. It's, it's a, a lot of the same modalities. Um, and uh, I mean, if you if you ask, I mean, if you even look at the, the percentage of, of the investments that are going to BRI countries, it hasn't even changed. Um, so it's this continuation of older processes of Chinese investments abroad um, that have come under a bigger public diplomacy slogan campaign. Um, so we are talking to some extent about the BRI as, as sort of a rhetorical tool or as, a, as an imaginary rather than kind of just Chinese investment more generally. Um, and then the second point about debunking the idea of China, I think this is a really important point and we can mention this, which is we're talking about on a case-by-case -case basis of such a variety of actors, such a variety of projects, such a variety of kind of SOEs, provincial governments, uh, provincial SOEs, private actors, et cetera. Um, and it's really hard, therefore, to speak of the BRI in monolithic terms, just as it's very difficult to speak of China in mon monolithic terms. So at the same time, you have extraction projects, very 
polluting, dirty industry, kind of coal-fired power plants. You also have tremendous amount of renewable energy pro projects. Uh, at the same time, you have sort of predatory lending. You may have other cases where China is actually much more constructive and much more concerned about what are local kind of impacts. So I think in that regard, it, it is useful to break it down a, a lot more. I, I totally agree, um, especially yeah, on, on the issue of uh, the, the one China notion. Of course, uh, I think that recently China is uh, turning uh, the line between what's um, private and state-owned is becoming blurred uh, compared to before. But of course, uh, it's important to, to uh, sort of keep that in mind that we're dealing with a lot of different actors. Uh, now, I was, of course, uh, mainly speaking from the perspective of perceptions in, um, in Europe. Um, but when it comes to uh, Ulf's your question here on, on uh, Austria and other countries um, uh, taking the BRI as a priority, um, yeah, I don't think that really uh, actually is anything different than what we previously said. That I mean, we're, the countries are doing this on a bilateral basis, um, and it's not uh, EU China uh, investment we're talking about. It's, it's, these are bilateral investments. Uh, and I, I don't know, I mean, having worked on the BRI since long before it was even born, uh, back in 92, uh, the, the, the Silk Road, yeah, of course. Um, you're probably, you're of, of course much more knowledgeable about this issue. Um, on um, Mats, your question on, on um, concerns raised by, by the EU, um, especially Germany, uh, are they real? I think on the issue of the South China Sea, I haven't seen that labeled as Belt and Road, but uh, the, the island building, I mean. But of course, uh, uh, it's the, the concerns over different aspects of Chinese engagement is often linked uh, when it's uh, reported in news reporting, connecting what's happening in South China Sea, the assertive behavior in China's um, backyard, um, but I think that um, when it comes to uh, the concerns uh, in Europe over investment, it's of a different nature. Um, and it's, um, when it comes to the EU, it's on mostly on a national basis uh, from country to country. Uh, and. Germany is the, the country where uh, most uh, investment in that have been deemed as potentially strategic investment have, have happened, have taken place. Um, and I would say that, uh, well, no, they were dismissed by local, uh, by national authorities in these countries as not risky enough to say no to. I mean, the, the, the number of acquisitions that have actually been turned down by authorities uh, are not uh, more than a handful, uh, or even that. Osa and Viking, would you like to respond to any other questions? If I could continue on uh, your question then, um, about the concerns uh, from the European side. Were you speaking simp only about the South China Sea or with regards to Belt and Road activities, projects in Germany? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. Oh, 
Okay. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I'm I'm just repeating it here since we are recording the seminar. Uh, so basically, yes, this as an uh, example maybe of more uh, wider uh, concerns potentially. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so um, then I think uh, there is uh, a first step that that China could take to mitigate these things, at least when it comes to Belt and Road uh, projects, and that is to um, implement transparency because if we can't um, really, if we can't uh, look into uh, procurement, business activity, um, ownership structures, it's going to be impossible uh, to evaluate whether these projects are um, uh, have have a strong uh, Chinese political influence in there, uh, whether they um, involve corruption, human rights violation, environmental problems. So. With transparency, uh, Europe could at least start to um, work with China on on to cooperate, uh, maybe in these projects. It's it's not it doesn't mean that they will, but uh, it's it's a precondition for even talking about that. I I think. All right. So uh, I think we have time for two uh, more quick questions. There's a lot of hands up. I apologize, everyone won't get time to ask questions right now, but uh, we have the gentleman here in the blue shirt and then the lady on the far left on the second row. Thank you. Uh, I, actually, I have uh, an, asked for some concrete uh, issues that we can uh, come up with with regard to Sweden and the uh, my name is Bo Jastrom. Uh, I'm a former ambassador at the Ministry for Foreign Affairs, and now I work as a business advisor. Uh, I think it's quite clear that uh, BRI is uh, here to stay. It's for real, and uh, we just have to kind of see what is going on. And uh, my view is really that uh, AIIB, referring to OSA, would be a very good platform to follow what is going on with it. Uh, I think we, it's a kind of, of, of uh, lost in translation that we don't really know what China is up to. And I think that IIB would be the And as you know, uh, sitting in the bank, that's my point. We need to get people into the IIB together with the Nordics or with also the EU members to really follow what is going on. Because in the banks, and I've been working with them uh, quite a lot, in the banks, you get all the unofficial versions of what is going on. You get the gossip and everything. So I think that is uh, something really for the observatory to press for. And I very much uh, the the initiative Thank you very much. Maybe we can even get some internships in these banks. Uh, <laughs> and then we have the lady uh, on the second row. Y you will get the microphone, please. Marianne Lanatsa, Lund University and the think tank Nina.se. Um, this organization and the all as a BI that came um, also parallel thing with Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And the strategy first to connect all these Asian states and making an Asian platform. That was a way, you can say, to have a 
really a platform for going ahead with all kinds of other infrastructure. But when you now look at the development of AI, uh, then it is, um, uh, you can see a lot of it in the new project in Morocco, in Harbour project. So to link even that so far to Africa, but with Moroccan-African projects. And they are, of course, competing with the European side. So sometimes you can go together, but in other projects, it looks like that there are um, a big competition. Thank you. Who would like to start this time? Well, I, I agree with you that Sweden has to be an active, an active member, an active owner to really understand what's going on, the, the types of projects that are happening and, and all the rest. Um, from the staffing that I've seen uh, at the AIB, you know, they have hired a lot of seasoned development bankers, for, from the staff from the World Bank, from the Asian Development Bank, and so forth, to make sure that they have uh, competent people, because it takes time to build that, uh, that competence. So there's been a lot of hirings from the other banks, and perhaps they will hire some Swedes also. See, but it's important to, to use that membership. Anders Borg is an advisor. Yes, but, and, but he's an advisor, but in a capacity that he's not there frequently. Um, so I think what you're referring to is to have people on the ground who actually walk the corridors, have a coffee with the colleagues and chat, <laughs> etc. So I think both are important. Maybe just a quick follow-up question there. Uh, for those of you who have experience uh, in this uh, sector, would it be attractive to, to Swedish professionals, you know, getting higher there? Is that something that might hurt your career or might it boost your career in the future? What, also, what would you say about that? <laughs> I think that's a very individual answers to that question, yeah. whether you like that. I mean, I've worked with... No, but, but, but I mean, because they have so much money, so you would think that, you know, this is the way to go if you're a professional in this, uh, in this sector. Not because it, it has an awful lot of money, but rather because they're doing exciting projects. Mm. And if, you know, if I was an engineering graduate specializing in road building or port construction, I would think this would be an interesting place to go work for because a lot of things are happening, perhaps. Um, if you are more in social development, th this bank is not the place for you, I would say. Then you have more challenging work in other places, maybe. Uh, but it's, it's, since the bank is new, there are lots of things happening, strategies are being developed. So being a part of that process is also a very, very interesting, uh, interesting job, I, I would think. It's a highlight in the CV, yes. <laughs> Do we have any other speakers who would like to? A question over here, Marianne. Uh, on, uh, there was a competition between different platforms in Asia. Was that, was that? It's the first platform, and then now can go ahead always. But in certain way outside, like in North Africa, competition rather than coordination. And that is the competition between China and Europe-led or Western-led projects. I would characterize uh, the Shanghai Corporation as an uh, organization as uh, something quite different from the Belt and Road. So I don't see really how to make a comparison. I mean, that's more about security cooperation. Um, 
when it comes to, to Belt and Road uh, projects then, and the example uh, was about Morocco, for example, where the Chinese are financing a lot, and of course Morocco is a strategically important area for Europe as well. So, so we've been talking a lot about uh, sort of how Europe can meet this challenge and maybe collaborate within projects. What about areas where it seems more like a zero-sum game, how, how, to, how to deal with that? I don't think it will be between Europe and China mm. because then it's there are other powers in question and, and, and it will be individual member states. But I haven't looked into that, so I, I'm, I'm not in a good place to answer. Yeah, I, I may just go back to a former question about bilateralism in, in EU member states. Um, just like, of, co of course, EU member states can go ahead and, and kind of make their own policies and have their own response, but then uh, then it's 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 hard to blame China for this not being a multilateral inclusive project, you know. So then then you have to take that into account in terms of what we demand from China in terms of inclusivity, using our platforms, using European kind of uh, uh, organizations and, and, and norms. Then you know that's kind of a little disconnect there. Um, right, so um, to come back to the question then on cooperation uh, with the possible element of, of, of competition, turning into competition maybe, and I think this will depend on, uh, I'm, I'm thinking here about Europe again, if Europe comes up with an alternative as it's looking as will happen, um, whether that turns out to be uh, confrontational or uh, cooperative, um, uh, that depends to a large extent on Europe, but also on China. If, if China is going to be willing to, because the European Union has high standards when it comes to transparency and, and these types of things, and if they manage to coordinate um, a response, um, they're going to ask Chinese projects that they might potentially support to live up to those standards, right? And if China is not willing to adapt, then it might be hard to cooperate, right? Um, now, I think we have good reasons to believe that China might um, be willing to adapt in many of these places because the Chinese economy is not uh, doing uh, exactly um, very good right now, and it's not looking as it's going to collapse, uh, but it's also not looking as it's going to continue growing. So the policy banks in China don't really have the capacity to uh, sustain these uh, uh, these. Uh, these projects, uh, at least uh, indefinitely. So, um, so, so I, th I think there's there's good a good reason to believe that this might become a cooperative um, um, sort of joint endeavor between Europe, Europe and China in the end. Uh, thank you very much, and uh, thank thank you very much to all of you who have been showing up today. Uh, all of these five speakers have published very relevant stuff. Uh, about this topic, so I encourage you to look up their profiles on respective uh, web pages. Uh, at UV, we have a new policy brief out in our UV brief series, uh, written by Viking actually, and another member of the network who's not here today, uh, Mr. Jungval, just out uh, the other day uh, about uh, the BRI. Uh, this talk has been recorded. We will have a podcast up on the webpage. Please share it with your colleagues and friends and family. Uh, and also, as a final word, uh, we are not taking summer holiday yet. 
at uh, the Asia program. Uh, Asia is bigger than China. We have our Stockholm seminar on Japan, hitting number 78 this week with a seminar about the EU-Japan relation with very good panel at the Stockholm School of Economics. You can sign up for that seminar, I believe, until tomorrow. So very welcome to take part then as well. And let's join me in giving our speakers a big hand. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews.